Hey everyone, I'm Julie Gunlock, your host for the ninth episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. For those new to the program, this podcast is focused on how parents should custom tailor their parenting style to fit what's best for their families, themselves, and most importantly, their kids. So today we're going to try something a little different. My good friend Hadley Heath, um, who is the policy director at IWF is on with me today. Hello, Hadley. Hey, Julie. How's it going? <laughs> but we are not going to be talking about policy uh, today. We're going to do something a little different, kind of a nice break for us. Um, uh, you know, so soon after the election, I think you and I have probably been had our faces stuck to the computer and iPhones and TV screens and watching the returns and watching everything that's going on in the country and the theories running around about what does this mean and what does that mean. So today we are going to actually be talking about food and cooking and I'm going to be slinging a little cooking advice. Hadley's got some questions and we thought it would be kind of a nice break from politics, but also we are very close to Thanksgiving. Um, so Hadley and I were chatting on the phone one day, obviously talking about policy issues and this came up, you know, just like she she had she's had some cooking questions and she thought, wouldn't it be fun um, if she sort of asked these questions? And 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 I think Hadley has some pretty common questions that um, that, you know, that that a lot of people you know wonder about. So we're going to just kind of chat about that. That'll, and that was a great idea. Thanks, Hadley, for coming up with that. You're welcome. I'm so mm-hmm. thankful for your mentorship in the <laughs> kitchen realm just to give uh, give your listeners a little bit more background on. On me, um, I did not really grow up in a family where we sat down together at home and like ate dinner. <laughs> and I've been really inspired inspired through the years, um, reading um, some of Julie's writing and sort of listening to some of her um, and following her on social media. She's obviously <laughs> um, a, a much uh, better cook than I am, but also just the the importance of um, family mealtime and um, just making your home really a, a, a safe place for your kids to, to, you know, to, to have this togetherness. And I think sitting down together for dinner is part of, you know, we talk about establishing traditions for your family or bespoke parenting. Yeah. And when I think about my family, my household, I really want like dinner time to be a, a thing that we do together. And my kids are just four and two. So we're in this stage of life where we're just kind of starting our, our family, um, traditions. But anyway, thank you, Julie, for being an inspiration to me. (laughs) Honestly, you're so sweet, but I honestly, I did grow up. It's funny how it's, it, it's interesting how so you're so often influenced by how you grew up because my mother was very much, uh, sit down to dinner type. And I really enjoyed that time. I enjoyed listening to my parents talk, um, listening to my dad talk about work, listening to what my mom was doing charity wise, or, um, you know, uh, sort of, you know, their, 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 your goings on in the community. And that was when I talked to my parents about things that bothered me or things that were going on at school. So I've always thought it was important. And then when I started writing about food, um, and, specifically children and food, it was amazing to me how 
children who um, who have some form of, of family time surrounding a meal. Like if they have, they sit down to dinner at least, I think it's four times a week, um, their nutrition outcomes are much better. The other things that matter are obviously going to bed early and limiting screen time. These are the three items. It's really interesting if you study like child nutrition that the three things that really affect a child's sort of nutri- like if they're if they're overweight or if they have nutrition issues the 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 main factors are going to bed a, a normal reasonable time limiting screen time including television and games and and sitting down to dinner so i'm a big pusher of this and um and i think it i think i think it's a great thing to do just in terms of family relationships but i think there's some really significant um sort of health outcomes that are affected by this. So I'm glad we're talking about this. And, and as I'm sure you can probably gather for the listeners is that I've become like a, I I love to answer food questions. I love it when, you know, one of my colleagues or a friend or a neighbor um, will, you know, will email me a question. I remember (laughs) a friend, um, this is our, our old colleague, um, Hadley. I remember Sabrina texted me and said, okay, um, you know, her babysitter had left salmon out on the counter for like an hour and she was worried if it was okay. And I, I, I told her to risk it. That's, I'm sure some, some, you know, public health official right now is having, you know, would have a heart attack if they heard, but I told her, um, and I, and I get a lot of questions from that, um, from other folks. So I, I like doing this. So I feel like we treat we you, uh, Julie, I feel like we treat you a little bit like the chopped, uh, show at IWF. We're like, I just found four random items in my pantry. What can I make for dinner with these I four have, random items? So I have saltwater taffy, a fillet of salmon, <laughs> and mandarin oranges. What can I do? And I'm telling you, I could, I might. Okay, that's that's probably pretty extreme, that's but good. I might be able to come up with something good. Yeah. But you know, I mean, I, I think sometimes dinner does feel like chopped, <laughs> where you're so busy and you haven't gone to the grocery store, or you haven't really thought out your menu. I mean, I know there are really organized people that. Um, that think out their weekly menus and have sort of rotation of things. I'm actually not like that, but I will say that I can kind of, I don't cook a lot from recipes, so it's easy for me to throw something together, but I don't think it is for other people. They really need to be kind of organized. You know, they need to say, okay, I'm making, you know, this casserole on this night. I need these ingredients Um, or, you know, I'm making this on this night. So, I think, um, you know, my, my advice always to people is, you know, come up with a, a list of 10 things, you know, have your um, have your items, you know, have like a really well stocked pantry. And we can talk about that, too. Like, what is a well stocked pantry? Um, because if you have a well stocked pantry, you can almost make anything um, fairly quickly. Um, and then but but do you have at least try to memorize a couple or have access to some recipes that are easy to do um, and that you can always pull things out of your pantry. So that helps, but we should probably get started here. But before I do, cause I know some listeners, um, you know, may, might not know who, um, who you are Hadley and what you do for IWF, but I do want to take just a second to read your biography. And this really doesn't have anything to do with food, but um, I think Hadley is so impressive. I've known Had- Hadley, how long have we known each other? 10 years or something? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Um, Hadley is just, one of the most impressive people I know, and I'm I'm so thrilled, um, you know, to work with her. And Hadley is actually the director of policy, so she manages all of us and makes sure that our priorities 
um, are sort of in line with IWS priorities. So she's got a big job and two that very little kids. So it's very impressive that she does all she does. Um, but Hadley, again, is the director of, um, of policy at IWF. She frequently comments on health care. That's sort of her niche. Um, but she also comments on entitlements and general economic policy. Um, she appears frequently on radio and TV outlets across country. She's on, she is on Fox all the time on Stossel, Neil Cavuto, Your World with Neil Cavuto. Um, and she's published everywhere. Uh, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Politico, Roll Call, Real Clear Policy, National Review, Huffington Post, and many others. Um, she is has been um, recognized in many on many of these sort of impressive lists, 30 under 30 lists. She was named a rising star by the RNC. And in 2017, she was the Tony Blinkley Chair for Public Policy and American Exceptionalism at the Steamboat Institute, which is in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. I think I have that right. And she lives in Denver, Colorado with her husband, daughter, son, um, in, a, in a great community. So again, glad to have you on. And why don't we just start off with your questions? We can just kind of okay. start from here. All right. I wanted to start with one that's not like, I don't, I don't think on its face is really that stupid of a question. Cause some of these are going to get straight up stupid. <laughs> I feel really <laughs> like I'm, I'm kind of shameless about the fact that I'm a novice in the kitchen yeah. and I yeah. feel like I should, you know, I mentioned earlier, we didn't eat dinner together a lot when I was a kid. <laughs> I feel like I should like defend my parents Aww. for a second. Like they're wonderful <laughs> people and they taught me a lot about life. Like my dad basically taught me how to buy stocks when I was in high school. So they gave me a lot of like practical preparation for life. But yeah. we didn't spend a lot of our evenings together, mostly because we were so busy. You know, like I was, right, I remember right. my like coming up years being very busy. I had a lot of like late night drama practice at the high school and stuff. So, so I feel like I should defend them. They were wonderful parents, and I it turned out fine. My nutrition has no, been great. No, no. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and I, 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 sorry, I'm sorry. I sort of went off on a tangent there, and you know, because because it is is so important. But I think in some ways, it's important to also realize, you know. People are so busy. It's funny, since I started writing this, and I, I'm not going to spend long here. I don't want to get too much out of a tangent and get off your, your cooking questions. But, but you know, my child is very big into baseball now, and he has he has baseball practice, I mean, you know, four days a week on the week weekdays, and then he has games. And so it's really become impossible for us to sit down all the time as a family. But, you know, I'm sure your parents – were very active in your life, took interest in your life, took interest in your activities. And I mean, that's sort of the point. I mean, in some ways, the family dinner thing is simply being involved in your children's lives. So, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't want people to feel bad if, you know, if their kids have all these activities and they're not sitting down to dinner. I think in general, the rule is be actively involved in your child's life, talk to them. And, and I think sometimes meals for people, it, like it's a way to show ch a child that you care and that you're, but you know, making them a sandwich or making them a snack, or there's a lot of ways you can do it. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm sorry to go off, but I did, I don't want people, I don't want to make people feel bad on this podcast. So well, and, and, and COVID has been a good chance for people to sort of reevaluate sure. their, their speed of their lifestyle and their sort of their family yeah. uh, lifestyle. Yeah. But my first question actually, I think is very relevant for Thanksgiving dinners. Okay. And this happens to me a lot, Julie, where I have like two, two things that I need to cook basically at the same time, but they really probably shouldn't cook at the same temperature. So what do I do? Is there a rule where I go with the higher or the lower or an average temperature or is it change the time that it cooks or what do I do? 
Well, this is the, it is, it's a tough question. And I think it is really a matter of balance. So let's say, you know, um, you have, and you're right, this does affect things at Thanksgiving. I actually have one oven. I have one oven. So I'm, I, it's always a matter like of most people, right? Right, <laughs> like right, exactly. <laughs> right, exactly. But you know, what you need to do is you need to prioritize, prioritize dishes. So obviously, if it's let's talk about Thanksgiving, the turkey is critical. And it's critical because it is, <laughs> it can kill you if you don't cook it right. <laughs> so we, we just, you know, other things like squash casserole, you probably won't die. But like, you know, and I'm kidding, but, it, but you could get very sick if you don't, if you don't properly cook a turkey. And so I think the most important thing is that you realize that, you know, you, you recognize the thing that really, and also obviously turkey and, or, you know, you could say ham, but really turkey is kind of a, you know, hams are usually already fully cooked. They're smoked and, and they're fully cooked. So they're not, it's not as scary as you, if you undercook a ham but with turkey, you certainly need to make that your priority. And what a lot of people don't realize is turkeys will stay warm for a very, very long time on the counter, particularly if you tent it with foil. And actually you do, you should let it rest. Um, the reason obviously is if you cut into a hot bird or any hot piece of meat, all the juices will run out. So what you want to do is let it rest, let the juices sort of redistribute into the piece of meat and, and, and it won't, when you cut into it, it won't leak out. And that's kind of key also. And especially in Turkey, a Turkey breast is very, very, it can be very dried out. So, um, so what I usually do is you, let's say the Turkey needs a, gosh, I can't even remember what a Turkey cooks at, but let's say 350. I mean, I always, by the way, I always, de I always default to 350. Um, and so, you know, let's say the Turkey cooks at 375 or three, 325. I don't know what it is. I should Google that really quickly, but you know, so let's say you're browning the turkey. You know, there is also a point where a turkey is close to being done, right? And it just, maybe it's a few temperatures off, okay? Or maybe the top needs to brown a little bit more. Although you should, that should actually happen kind of early in the process. But the po point is, is, you know, if you're cooking a turkey at 375 and some of the casseroles you're making cook at 350, at the end of cooking, you can certainly lower it, stick your casseroles on a lower shelf and let that bird finish out. And then you take it out and you can finish off those, those casseroles. I will say when you stuff, a, when you stuff a, uh, an oven like that, you should probably be careful, careful about temperatures. It will, you know, it will reduce, I mean, there's a lot of things in there and that will reduce the temperature of the oven. Sometimes what the oven will display, the heat and what the oven is actually isn't always um, the same. So, you know, one thing that I do, for instance, dense casseroles, like a sweet potato casserole, if you take a butter knife and you stick it in the center of that, that casserole, first of all, it should slide in like melted butter. It should be very, it should just fairly easily slide in. If there's any resistance, you know, it's cool in the center. And what you do is you put that knife in there and then you delicately, now don't, don't shove it in your face instantly, but just very, I always put it to my, my bottom lip and just tap it a little bit. And if it's, you know, if it's, it's painful or if it's like really hot, then the inside of the casserole is cooked through. But if it's if that knife doesn't get it get searingly hot, like really hot, you know that that casserole needs a little bit more time. So, it, you know, you have to sort of use tools 
that because if you're putting a gigantic turkey and two casseroles in an oven and everything needs to cook, you know, the turkey has to cook for several hours, but then the casserole is just for a little bit at the end. It might not because you, you know, you had the turkey in at one at the beginning and then you pull it out. That oven might be a little because you've opened the door, you've let the heat out. So I'm saying is that, you know, if your casserole needs to cook for a half hour, that's fine. But you should test it by other means than just trusting the time. You should use the butter knife knife method or any kind of, you know, steel implement like a, a spoon would work too. So those are kinds of tips that I would I would give people for juggling the dishes at Thanksgiving. Okay. So it sounds like there's not really that easy rule of thumb that I was hoping for. Cooking but like, is, yeah. Like, yes. like everything in the kitchen, I will I will get better at this with time and practice. You will. <laughs> and, and cooking is so much of cooking is just instincts and feeling. You know, I my mom, my mom. You know, she cooks like me. There's not a lot of recipes, and then when she does write a recipe down, it'll ha- she'll have things like, you know, adjust for seasonings. Now I understand what that means, but that's the kind of maddening statement for people who don't cook much. They're like, well, what does that mean? Is it supposed to be more salty? Is it supposed to be, you know? So instinct really comes into. I mean, and not with baking. If you want, if you want complete measurements and absolute certainty, then chemistry, then baking is better for you. But with cooking, Uh there's a lot of just winging it. Okay. Well, speaking, you brought baking up. And so my next question might relate to this. I'm not sure, but one, uh, this is, this is, we're entering stupid question territory, (laughs) but one, one constant source of confusion for me is butter. Do do I do salted butter or unsalted butter and when, and like, what's the rule on that? There is a rule on that. Okay. Okay, good. (laughs) This is this is this is your kind of question because there's okay. definitely a rule on this. When you are baking, you should always use unsalted butter because a recipe will often call for salt separately. Even chocolate chip cookies, even sweet things, you put butter and I make a crust, salt is called for in the crust. So if you use salted butter, you're upping that salt. So in baking, always use unsalted. However, <laughs> if you're anything like me, I never have unsalted butter in my fridge. I always use salted butter um, and I use a lot of stick butter. And so I always forget. It's like buttermilk. You know, I always want to use, I always want to make my mom's um, banana bread and it calls for buttermilk and I never have buttermilk and, and I make my own. You just add a little vinegar to milk and it makes buttermilk. But the point is, is buttermilk is a little thicker too and it, it's it got, um, it's got a different consistency. So I'm always mad at myself for not having buttermilk and I'm always mad at myself for not having unsalted butter but it does not stop me from baking you can still bake you might want to reduce with the salted butter if the recipe then calls for salt you might want to reduce it a little so that you're not it's you're not really you know you're not over essentially over salting something but you but don't worry about the chemistry in the recipe nothing's going to it's not going to taste terrible you might have, it might be saltier if you don't reduce the salt that it calls for, the separate salt, but you can use salted butter just like unsalted. That's fine. But you should use unsalted. Keep it stocked in your fridge. It freezes well. Keep a couple boxes in the freezer. Okay. You ready for my next stupid I'm question? This is, the, this is the one I'm worried about being embarrassed about. Uh, <laughs> that's why I've buried it three questions in to the podcast. <laughs> well, this is another mystery to me. Why are there different measuring cups? For liquids and solids. Okay, this is. <laughs> I know this is weird, but the, it it liquids and solids act differently in a contained, like they. 
Now it's, uh, but let me, t- let me say this. I, I, I can't, I constantly, I don't ever use liquid measuring cups for, for solid things. Okay. Or for like flour, but I have used because, you know, one is dirt. It's already dirty. I've already used it for the flour. And yeah. so then I'll use it for the milk. Okay. Whereas I would never do that in reverse. I would never use dry. I would never put dry things in a wet measuring cup. Okay. Uh, just because it's awkward, right? It would be yeah. awkward. They're designed differently. Um, but I, I do know my mom. I remember my mom telling me like they're different. They, they, for some reason, she, I, I can't remember which one. And I, to be honest with you, I could be wrong. Okay, and so could my mom. But I just know that that it's w- with dry. You should use the dry measuring cup, and that. But the the difference is like so tiny that it doesn't really matter. It's just it makes sense that you wouldn't use a liquid measuring cup for dry ingredients. So yeah, I will say it's easier to pour liquids out of something that has a spout. It right? does, it has a and some some so dry I get that. Yeah, and some but... dry ones do. Now, I to be honest with you, I've never done the experiment. I have uh-huh. never. Um, I've never done this, the experiment of like taking a dry thing or taking a wet thing and then measuring it from a dry measure into it to see the difference. But I will say this, when you put flour in a container, um, it's, it fluffs up. I mean, I, I, you know, when I, when I take the flour out of the container, I use a dry measuring cup, but I, the first thing I do is dip it in and kind of, I, I take a big scoop and then I pour it out and I take a big, I kind of mix up the flour so it's not packed down. And then I take a scoop out and then I level it off with a, a knife and it is fluff. There's air. I have, I've integrated air into the flour before I use the scoop for the last time and level it off. Whereas, a, as, and so for that reason, it might be slightly different because obviously a liquid, you can't introduce air into it. You know, you can't, it's like, it's just, it's going to be packed in there. It's going to be like a packed, you know, you don't take the flour out and bang it against the counter and then put more flour in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it may have something to do with that. It probably I just got to say either. like last Christmas, maybe I got a set of liquid measuring cups and this, <laughs> and, and I, I'm like in my thirties and this is the first time in my life that I had liquid measuring cups. And I was like, Oh, I've just been pouring milk in my that's like funny. Cup measure and it's I mean, worked I out should, fine so far. <laughs> I should, I should preface this by saying that, these are things that I, I was, you know, I was told or I learned, but I've never confirmed them. So, I mean, if you Googled okay. this right now, maybe it would be like, nope, there's no difference. I've just always thought that there was. And uh-huh. so, but again, I have used dry measurers for liquid and nothing's ever been destroyed. Okay. All right. That's good to know. Okay. So my next question has to do with surfaces that I cook on because I have yeah. different kinds of pots and pans and I've got some that are nonstick. And then I've got one that is made from stainless steel that I really like because I like the size of it. Um, yeah. But it kind of it frustrates me because, like, God forbid I try to scramble eggs in this oh, stainless steel thing. Don't like, do it just that. doesn't work out. Um, and then I have some cast iron skillets that, to be honest with you, and I'm saying this as a southerner, like I'm from North Carolina, I don't really know how to use a cast iron yeah. skillet or what, like, wh- like, when I'm making the choice of, like, here's something I'm going to cook. I've got all these pots and pans. Which one do I pick for which thing? Right. What's are the answer st- to are that? Your, are your cast iron skillets, are they brand new or were they handed down? No, they they were bought new. Bought new. Have ago. you seasoned it? Have you done, gone uh-huh. through that? Okay, you did. And yeah. how often do you use it? Never. 
because I don't know how. (laughs) Well, part of the seasoning process is use. And the more you use it, the better it gets. And cast iron is what's called the like sort of naturally nonstick. The more you use it and you probably know not to wash it, not to use soap on it. And you have to, you know, you wipe it out and you can you can use water to to sort of you know if you've got some real gross stuff on it, but you would you shouldn't soak in a cast iron pan and you shouldn't use soap. It's sort of a you know this is all part of it. And you should also line it with oil when you're not using it. I have one. I also have a um, uh, a wok that needs to be cared for. My mom got it in in Korea when we lived there when we were little, and it's a very nice wok. And I care for it just like I do um, the cast iron. And the more you use your cast iron, the more uh, like nonstick it becomes and easier to use. That said, I would never dream of making eggs. I know people do. It's not that nonstick. You know what I mean? I've just I've never under and I feel like I mine is a well seasoned pan. It was handed down to me, so it's very old pan. Um, but I don't I don't really understand that. It's not you know it's great for steaks and it's great for you know certain. I just use it for for meat. Um, you know, people are really itchy. First of all, stainless steel. <laughs> I've heard people say, "Oh, it seasons too." No, I mean, I don't know. About, I don't know how anybody. And I'm look. I'm a. I'm a good cook who can make an egg and a beautiful over easy egg. I can make sunny side egg. So I think over easy or harder. Um, I've never made eggs in anything but a nonstick. And people are nervous about nonstick, but they have to remember for it really to become toxic, you have to cook it. Like, I think the pan has to get over 600 degrees or over 559 degrees, something. It's near 600 degrees. I mean, you're not, there's no, there's simply no oven in uh, our stove in the marketplace that would get your your pans that hot. Um, And so, you don't really have to worry about nonstick. And also, like, why would you fry an egg in a pan that hot? You know, it just doesn't make sense. So, um, so, you know, nonstick is perfectly fine. And I think that delicate items like fish, my God, I once destroyed a piece of fish when I tried to cook it in, in a, in a stainless steel pan. And I'm still bitter about it because it was expensive. Mm. Um, but you know, I think it's, it's pretty obvious, you know, like certain non-delicate meats are perfectly fine in stainless steel. Stainless steel is great. If you're going to saute something, take it out, then add in, um, you know, a a, a liquid so that you can scrape the pan. You know, you do want some sticking, you know, when you're, when you're going to make a pan sauce, for in- instance, when, you know, you're going, you know, when you're going to add later on, when you're going to add certain aromatics or you're going to add vegetables, you know, if you put an onion, if you, if you take a, a pork chop, for in- instance, and you sear it in a stainless steel pan, not a nonstick pan, because I, I, I'm about to explain why you want, and you take it out and there's all those black bits and, and, you know, fat and other things that kind of look like the pan's dirty. Well, when you add an onion to that, a little bit of salt, the, the onions will release their water. And it will loosen the brown bits. And that's the base of a sauce. What you're doing is you're making the base of a sauce. So the, the I call them the full stick pans are full stick for a reason. You want them to be st- sticky. You want some of the meat and juices to end up in the pan, you want the brown bits to stick to the bottom of the pan so that later when you add your aromatics and your, and your liquid, those bits get, get scraped up. So, you know, I think when you're making eggs 
when you're making very delicate fishes, um, you know, use a nonstick. Sometimes, you know, delicate vegetables, um, you use a nonstick uh, pan, you know. And then when you're doing things like meats or things where you want to, you really want that stickiness. I mean, really, the question is, do I want things to stick to it? And if the answer is yes, you're you're not going to make a pan sauce out of eggs. That's gross even thinking about it. But, um, but you know, anything that, for instance, that you make a gravy in, you know, I sometimes I'll, I'll take chicken breasts, I'll, I'll saute them, flip them over, saute them again, then I put them on a plate. They're not cooked. They're not fully cooked. But then I'll add in some white wine. I may add some cream, some Dijon mud stirred, you know, and then I add the chicken back into, I've made, I've essentially made a sauce. Or sometimes I'll take you know, a little broth and orange marmalade or, you know, a, a you know, a, even apple marm or apple jam or something like that. And it, there I've made a sauce and then you add the chicken back into it and you saute it for, you know, let it just simmer away for half an hour, then it's cooked. But again, you've the stickiness, the chicken sticking on the bottom of that pan, even if just a little bit um, is what is the start of the pan sauce. Sorry mm-hmm. for that long answer. No, it's just making me hungry. I know. All right. My next question is kind of, it's kind of, I'll ask it. It's really two questions, um, but it's about stuff that you keep in your kitchen and not food stuff, but like tools and appliances. So I want to know in Julie Gunlock's kitchen, what is the thing in your kitchen that you use the most in terms of like tools or appliances? And also what is the thing in my kitchen or your kitchen, I should say, that maybe is something that I don't even have yet. It's something like kind of expensive or fancy, but it's like worth splurging on. I'm going to combine these answers because it's the same answer. Same thing. First of all, I am a non-gadget kitchen. I cannot stand do have, gadgets. Do you do an instant pot? Do you have an instant uh, pot? I do have an so so I I'm that's I'm so trendy right like, now. That's why. Yes, I asked. yes, and I do have one, and I do use it, um, but. I am, a, I'm, I, I'm talking more like, you know, the thing like, oh, it's a grapefruit, grapefruits, um, se- separator or, mm-hmm. um, you know, these, these little gadgets where you put the onion in and then you stomp down on this oh, thing yeah. and, it, and you know, like, like 15 times and you have a chopped onion. I don't believe in those gadgets. I do have mm-hmm. certain appliances and countertop appliances like an Instapot. The most important thing that you should have in your kitchen is a good knife. The most important thing. And I have an eight eight inch chef's knife. I have two of them actually. And they are the workhorses of my kitchen. And you should have a good cutting board, preferably with a lip. And you should have several cutting boards. I have several sizes. um, And I I use the... the plastic ones. I don't know. There's probably a better word for melanine or I don't know what that material is. It's like a plasticky material. I'm not super anal about like, I mean, there are people who have like, you know, labels on them. This is the meat cutting board and this is the vegetable. I'm not like that, but I, but I do have several for several different jobs. Um, But really a solid chef's knife is the most important thing. It crushes you can use the back side of it to crush things if you don't necessarily need to chop it, like a garlic clove. Um, you can, you know, you can pick the eyes out of potatoes um, with a chef's knife. You can slice and dice and do all the things that you would do normally with a, a, a chef's knife. But it's very, very important. And when I say, you know, really, because I would say 
ultimately all you need in your kitchen is chef's knife. You have to maintain it. There are knife sharpeners, you know, like William Sonoma. And I think some other cooking stores can actually send your knives away and have them sharpened. Regular maintenance, people don't realize you actually do need to have your knives sharpened. You need to have them, the sharpener in that comes with a knife set. That is not a true sharpener. That stra- straightens the blade. Okay. Cause your blade can get a little bit bent and it's a teeny, it's microscopic level of, de- of, of dullness. It's not like you actually bent the knife. You can't see it. So the straightener kind of straightens the edge out, but it's not really sharpening it. You need to go to a professional. Be careful. Go to a really good, you can have your knives ruined. So I think really the most important thing. Now, as far as other things, I have an Instapot. I have, I, I don't, I don't use a slow cooker very much. I will never understand why someone thinks chicken breasts in a slow cooker for eight hours is a good idea. I do not understand this. Chicken breasts are not a tough cut of meat. Chicken breasts are a tender cut of meat. It would be like putting a filet mignon in a, I mean, there's certain things that just don't go in, in slow cookers. Slow cooker to me is you put a, 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 um, a, you put chili in a slow cooker oh yes you could do things like that any any kind of ground meat or you could you know but but what i'm saying is if something only on the stove top you know you can cook a chicken breast in you know 10 15 minutes right um i don't understand putting those kinds of things in a slow cooker now you can't like you know beat like ribs or uh or a boston butt you know or a beef chuck these are all tough cuts of meat. They need hours. So so the other night, my husband re- wanted pot roast. He, he's a very Midwestern guy, very meat and potatoes. He, he wanted a pot roast. And I made a very traditional pot roast. I had a very tough cup of meat. I think it was a bottom loin, a, bo- bo- uh, a bottom, bottom round, bottom round roast. And that is just, I mean, you'll chew, if you put that in a pan and just, you know, fried it up, you'd you'd be chewing for, you know, hours. And so, you know, it was in my oven for three hours at a low temperature. Now you could put that in it. That's perfectly fine for eight hours in a crock pot because you're, you're just going to continue to break down the collagen and break down that meat. And that's what you want. You want it to be soft. Um, barbecue, same thing. You could put a pork roast in the, in the slow cooker for eight hours, pour some barbecue sauce over it. And then you'd have, you know, You'd have some, I mean, not, I don't want to get a hatred from barbecue snobs, but I'm saying like for a family meal, that's what you could do. But crockpots really are overused in my opinion. Um, and they're not used properly and the, the right things are not made in a crockpot. Um, I, my mom, I still make fun of her for this and she'll be mad. She once made something where you put pasta Oh no, it was rice. She made a crockpot risotto. And I mean, it tasted like porridge. Like it was like the rice completely disintegrated. And, um, and so like, you know, when you can crank out a lot of recipes, but you should tell yourself, okay, if I take a whole grain of rice and I put it in water and I boil it, it will only take 20 minutes. So anything that only takes 20 minutes shouldn't ever be put somewhere for eight hours. So same thing with a chicken breast. Chicken thighs are great. They're, they're a tough meat. They need time. To, and and chicken thighs are the kind of thing where it when you put them in the, the the crock pot for eight hours they don't disintegrate whereas a chicken breast really turns kind of pasty. Um, so I use I I don't use my crock pot, pot very much. I love my pressure cooker. It's fast and it does not it doesn't mush things. It doesn't turn them to mush because really it's 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 actually quick cooking. Um, the other thing is just very. 
I really believe in in good pots and pans, heavy bottomed pots and pans that that cook evenly, that don't have scorch areas. You know, buy it's gonna set you back. You know, you have to. I, I bought, I got mine for my wedding, and they're still. I've been married almost 20 years and they're still solid. They're so still great. The nonsticks I have to, I have to um, replace, but I have a professional grade of pans that are full stick. (laughs) They are not nonstick and they are just, they're the workhorses. So good knives, good pots and pans. And if, uh, and if you cook at a level, like I do some solid Tupperware or, (laughs) <laughs> or, or containers for leftovers because I always cook like I'm, you know, making enough for a football team. Sounds great. I, I like the the knives. I'll add that to my Christmas list. Yes. If anyone from my family is listening and you want to know what to give me for Christmas, <laughs> give me some, also good for self defense. I and imagine. I will, and I will tell you, you don't need. Sometimes you know they sell these. And I, I'm sorry, I'm going. My my answers are so long here, but you don't need this. You know, 18 piece knife set. Okay, which are you know. Seven hundred dollars. You you need a solid chef's knife. Eight inches is is pretty typical, and I have a smaller one. I have a a four inch. I have a six inch. And I have two eight inches, and you need a small paring knife. You need a bread knife, and really with a small paring knife, one eight inch chef's knife, and a good bread knife. Th- that's really that's a great starter. And, and the, the reason I say that is because a very, very good chef's knife is, you know, it's, it's not $30. You know, I mean, my, the latest one I bought um, was, I think, $190. And you don't need one that expensive. But I cook so much that I, I do need one that is, a, that is very heavy and is comfortable for my hand. But, you know, you, they're, they're generally around $100. And so if you buy the whole knife set, you know, that can sometimes run as much as $500, but really focus on the, sh- on the knives that you're going to use the most. And that again is a small paring knife, a, uh, a chef's knife and a bread knife to begin with. And then you can build from there. I'm about to go buy some memory foam mats for my kitchen floor. I get so tired of standing up. I'm almost uh, for our listeners. I am pregnant. And so like the back aches are, are real, but, uh, standing over the stove, it can be fun, but it can also be, uh, yeah, you know, get tired, sure. but yeah. I have a couple a couple questions that I think will be kind of quick ones uh, to wrap us up, Julie. But um, one thing that I feel really strongly about, and this is you'll also sense my southern roots coming out, is like food as ministry and food as fellowship. Yep. And um, so whenever I know someone who's had a new baby or who's had a family member die or who's been in the hospital or who's you know faced some kind of hardship, I like to make them a meal. And yep. I want to know, Julie, what's your go-to for when you got to make somebody a meal? I always keep it extremely simple and extreme. And I, I don't want to say this um, almost bland because mm. I have this funny story. And when I tell her, I, I'll tell, I'm not going to name her, but this was a <laughs> friend of mine. She's actually going through chemo. And mm. so people were dropping off and she had some really, she was sick and mm. I dropped off my normal. I'll get to what I always bring over. And she was telling me that someone had dropped off chicken curry and the smell. She just, she just was gagging. It was so hard for her. Now, this is a delicious chicken curry recipe that on any normal day, but you got to think about even after pregnancy, I just wanted comfort food. Every time I delivered and came home, my mom was there and she would make something very simple for me. And so I always tell people like, you know, 
you may be you may you may make an amazing chicken marabella. Don't make that. It's greasy and it's it's you know chicken on the bone or you know like you don't 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 try to impress people with like your in- incredible like you know don't say I I just perfected my bulgogi recipe. I'm going to make <laughs> that for you. Um so I always keep it simple. I make things like turkey meatballs which are you know, it's a very simple or Swedish meatballs if you wanted to go beef and pork. Um, and these are very simple things. Bring, you know, and I always bring like, you know, egg noodles, just boiled and buttered egg noodles. And then a side of, I love this. It's you take a whole carrot, whole long carrot, you peel them, clean them, put them on a cookie sheet, olive oil, salt and pepper and roast the heck out of them. And it's so pretty keeping them whole like that because they get brown and they kind of shrivel up a little bit. Oh my gosh. And natural sugars come out of a carrot. So it's very, very sweet. So that simple buttered noodles and some turkey meatballs with gravy and those roasted carrots is very comforting or peas. If you know, they like peas, something like that mash things with mashed potatoes. You could make a cottage pie, which is essentially a shepherd's pie, but with beef instead of lamb. I always stick to things that, you know, I think people are going to like if they're a vegetarian and not a vegan, you know, mac and cheese is always nice, but do something sweet. Like put, Put goldfish on the top, right? Instead of be- breadcrumbs, because they've just had a baby. Put, mm-hmm. put, put some some uh, some goldfish on the top of a mac and cheese. Um, if they're vegan, there's plenty of tofu recipe. I actually love tofu, um, and there's pl- and soups. You know, soups are also like if they're a vegan family, a, a lovely hearty vegetable stew is something that I think people really love. And the other thing is, is when, when bring, always bring them something for breakfast too. I think it's always nice just to pick up some muffins or, you know, maybe some sweet rolls or something, or if they have another kid, pick up some donut holes, um, something to give them a break. So those are, that's sort of my go-to is keep it simple, keep it good, but on the blander side. I love that. Maybe we can include a recipe or two when we post this uh, yeah, podcast. But my idea. last question for you, Julie, is a little bit of a joke, and insiders will appreciate <laughs> this. But, Julie, I want to know, um, because this food is so trendy, what's the best way to prepare kale? Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> thought you'd like that one. It really is the <laughs> Julie's worst. Julie's not a kale is, fan, right? <laughs> I am not a kale fan. Now, listen, I tried. I tried really hard to convince myself to love kale. Um and I, I think there are some benefits to kale. Very, very good for you. Kale chips were all the rage. I had a few, but they're just—it's such a pain in the butt to make them. Um, but I do appreciate now. Now there is one way that I do make kale, and I, or, uh, I do eat kale. It is a lovely, healthy pasta recipe. I'll just quickly go through what I do. Is you saute? You can saute a, a pork-based, um, pork-based Italian sausage, hot Italian sausage. Or you can do a turkey sausage. And I tend to do more turkey sausage than anyway. But a hot turkey sausage, you saute that. You add a ton of kale into this. And, you know, you've you've sauteed your turkey sausage. Turkey sausage doesn't release a lot of oil. So you'll have to add a little olive oil. And then you add your kale in. And you saute that and the, and the sausage together. So you've already cooked the sausage. And now you're just kind of wilting down the kale. And then you add in bear with me. I'm telling you, this is really good. Some golden raisins. If you don't have golden raisins, you can certainly use uh, black raisins. You add about a half a cup and then some toasted pine nuts. Okay. Then you add a little bit of chicken broth and let that simmer away. And then just after, you know, let let it simmer just for about 20 minutes or so. You add whole wheat pasta, whole wheat penne to that and, and let the penne, you undercook the penne just a little bit so that when you add it to the 
the saute pan with the sausage and kale and raisins and pine nuts, the, the pasta will absorb the liquid a little bit more. You put it onto plates and you top it with some Parmesan cheese. Now, there you go, Hadley. You didn't stump right. I was able to I give you a that. recipe for kale. That is the I'm one use for kale. It's delicious. You can also it. use broccoli rob. You can use mustard greens, but, but I, do, I do think it's best with kale. Well, you know, I'm a millennial, so between kale and avocado, <laughs> that's basically what I suggest. your diet. On. Yeah. The whole diet. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Julie, for answering all my questions. <laughs> I feel that very educated. Well, I, I have one last question for you. What what will you be doing for, ho- for ho- listen to me, Halloween? Oh, my God. I'm still I'm still eating Halloween candy. Uh, for, for Thanksgiving this year, are you going to be a family, and are you in charge of making the turkey? Or the I am. I am getting turkey. I've made a turkey the last few years. I think this answer won't resonate with everybody, but it'll resonate with a subset of people. Um, my husband works in healthcare, and so he's going to be working the full week of Thanksgiving, oh. and so we don't go anywhere. Um, I like to be with him, so when he comes home from work, we'll have our Thanksgiving dinner, and that's really special to me because, um, you know, I try to support him in his work in helping people. If you're hospitalized on Thanksgiving, you certainly want to have your doctor there with you, and this also means that we get Christmas off, so that's a big, that's a trade oh. I'm willing to make. And so, um, but yeah, it's a, you know, Thanksgiving has become a lesser holiday for me, um, with my husband working so frequently, but it's still really important to me to get my family together for dinner as frequently as I can. Oh, good. Well, listen, Hadley, um, I will, uh, be looking forward to more reports about your, your pregnancy and, um, and good luck with everything. And I'm so happy for you guys. And I'll be sending you some, some more quick and easy recipes for, thank you. Um, the, the expanding family. Thank you. Sounds good, Julie. All right. Thanks for joining us, Hadley. Bye. Thanks everyone for being here for another episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. If you enjoyed this episode or like the podcast in general, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. This helps ensure that the podcast reaches as many listeners as possible. If you haven't subscribed to the Bespoke Parenting Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, please do so so you won't miss an episode. Don't forget to share this episode and let your friends know that they can get bespoke episodes on their favorite podcast app. From all of us here at the Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thank you.